On Script podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at Onscript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash onscript. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Matt Lynch here for Onscript, and we have today a very special episode. Matt Bates and I are... Uh, not only co-hosting this together, we are the guests together. So we ask each other questions. Uh, several of you have asked us to do more as a co-host team. So this is one step in that direction. And we're listening to you. And so we asked each other questions. And I hope you enjoy our conversation. We could have gone on a lot longer, but we tried to keep it within our roughly one hour time limit, um, which is quite long anyway. But we hope you enjoy the, the conversation and I know that we did. Um, so if you get a chance to give us a rating on iTunes or wherever you get this podcast, please do so. That's uh, quite helpful to us. If you don't, we want we actually want you to be guilt-free. So um, you could donate instead. All right? That's how you can assuage your guilt. Um, you can go to onscript.study to find out about that. Uh, but if you feel guilty about that, too, like you don't want to um, give us a rating on iTunes for whatever reason, maybe you want to maintain more internet anonymity or maybe you don't have money to donate and just want to freeload Um, then uh, another thing you could do is to just pass the word on to the person beside you on the bus the person who is beside you in the you know cubicle where you work or maybe the person next to you in the um you know if you're a tree trimmer maybe you're up there chainsaws you know cutting through branches and you've got someone else hanging hanging around up there you can tell them about it so there you've got lots of options among your co-workers uh family members we've we've gone through this before if you just go back through our back episodes we've got all kinds of creative ideas for you so um yeah share the word and we'd appreciate that thanks so much for listening we we really do value uh your feedback um i get emails sometimes on script podcast at gmail.com you can always email us um, that stuff really encourages us, so it keeps us going as co-hosts. So thanks for listening, and enjoy this episode of Matt and I talking together about stuff. Hey, everyone. Welcome to OnScript. This is Matt Lynch here with Matt Bates. Hey, Matt. Hey. How are you doing, Matt? Yeah, doing okay. Um, we are doing an episode together because we have not done one together in a very, very long time. We used to do, I think we did Q&A episodes probably back in like 2016, 17, maybe 2018, I'm not sure, but just the two of us, it's been a long time. So I thought it'd be good to get on the air together and and we're actually going to ask each other questions for this one. Uh, So we've got, we've each got a few questions for the other person. And um, so, yeah, should we go for it? Yeah, it's great to sort of get a chance to reconnect at our foundations. I know, I know. It's been, uh, we're actually the next episode to release, which will already be out when this comes out, is our 100th episode. Did you know that? No. Yeah. No, I had no idea. Yeah. So the, Are we going to have a party? Um, I, maybe a virtual party. Um, maybe we could throw some confetti on Twitter. But beyond that, I don't, I don't have any major plans. It seems hard to organize. Um, well, I'll wear a party hat over here. Like, yeah, I, I think at SBL this year we could we could celebrate somehow. Well, um, so I got some questions for you. You've got some questions for me. And uh, the way that we, uh, just for listeners, decided to do this was I wrote out three questions for Matt, and uh, I think he wrote three for me. So we, we've seen some of them in advance, uh, but others are unseen mystery questions uh, that we have not yet discussed yet. So why don't, why don't we start with a softball question for Matt then, uh, because I know he's been working on this topic a lot, and uh, this is one of his scene questions, so I'm expecting him to hit a home run on this. <laughs> no, no pressure. No pressure, Matt Lynch. No pressure. So uh, Old Testament and violence. Uh, so um, you've been working on this, I know. Uh, in fact, you have a, a forthcoming book on the Old Testament and violence. And one of the questions that I guess I would like to hear you speak more about is, this is such a hot topic, um, what is the Old Testament's distinctive witness here? What does it give us? Because I think sometimes there's a tendency in the Christian tradition just to rush to the New Testament, right, whenever we're, we're talking about violence. Um, 
why, why should we not do that? What do we have to learn from the distinctive voice of the Old Testament? Here? Yeah, that, I liked how you framed that because it's um, the Old Testament's often the foil for the New Testament in discussions about violence. And um, I think especially in some popular level treatments recently, it's kind of like you've got you've got Jesus and his sort of ethic of nonviolence and and we we take that and we pit it against the old testament using maybe like the uf heard it said sayings as a as a as a kind of paradigm for doing that so jesus says you've heard it said blah 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 but i tell you blah 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 then then it's like okay we've got this contrast set up and jesus is bringing a, a sort of distinctive ethic and and i think he is to a certain extent but but also one of the ways I've thought about the question of violence in the Old Testament is, how is it that Jesus, who is deeply steeped in Israel's scriptures and, you know, raised in in an environment where he's hearing the Old Testament on a regular basis, how is it that someone like him, who's so formed by these scriptures, teaches what he taught? And so, my so that's that's not quite getting to your question of like the distinctive witness of the Old Testament, but it I think it highlights the fact that there's we should expect some level of continuity when thinking about violence between the Old and New Testament. Um, but in saying that, I'm not trying to kind of erase all the the problems we see when we come to the Old Testament around um, you know the 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 conquest in Joshua um, and the flood or um, various laws in the Old Testament that are quite violent or praying the violent Psalms. So, there are different ways that the Old Testament poses the problem of violence for us as modern readers. Um, But then I also think that the Old Testament brings its own distinctive contributions, which gets to your question. Um, And and like one of those that, that sort of hits us right away is the way it sets the problem of violence which it recognizes as a problem in the context of creation. And this is one of those things we might miss when we read the creation story. So, in Genesis 1-2, it talks about how, you know, the, the earth is formless and void, and, you know, the, the breath of God, the Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the water. And, and when we, like, put the Genesis 1 creation account in conversation with some other creation accounts, you can see that in Genesis, according to Genesis 1, violence has no kind of an intrinsic or necessary role in creation. So, it's not part of creation's DNA. And and this is something that Richard Middleton highlights really helpfully. He, he says that, like, when you have a violent creation story, it ontologizes violence. You know, it, it makes it part of the, the kind of necessary part of the world. And Genesis 1 especially when you read it in its ancient context, suggests that violence is not primordial. Um, it's, a, it's part of the, the brokenness of the world, and that, that that difference is really important. And so, um, and there are a lot of other dimensions to that, even within Genesis 1 itself. Could, yeah, go ahead. Could I, yeah, could I stop you there and ask a, a probing question along those lines? Would you distinguish then between violence and evil? Um, would you say that, like in our early creation stories, um, although we don't want to deny creation ex nihilo because it's clearly affirmed elsewhere in Scripture. I mean, a lot of people have argued that Genesis, you know, in, in, the, in the beginning in Genesis 1, 1, that story that follows there, we don't see it. And that we have, you know, if, if not violence in, uh, in the ontology, we still have um, a threat that's hostile to life, right? The earth is not hospitable. It's formless. It's um, the, the, the deep can't sustain it, right? And so that part of what God is doing is you know, um, crafting a hospitable place where life can flourish. Uh, so, uh, would you make a, a hard distinction there when you talk about the ontological sort of underpinnings of violence um, between that and I, evil? I wouldn't. I wouldn't see any sort of hostility at all or evil, even in Genesis one two. So, I think, I think what Genesis one two is saying is basically that the earth was in a not yet state. And so, it, it's not that it was bad and needed forming any more than the Christian doctrine of creation out of nothing says that nothing is evil. That's the world before, that's before there, there was the world. And an ancient kind of 
framework, uh, ancient Israelite framework, they didn't have this sort of category of nothing existing. And so their way of putting that would have been unformed. Um, and so for something to be unformed and unshaped is for it not to be yet. And, and we see this in the Genesis 2 creation account too, where it says that there was not yet a stream, er, there was... Um, there was not yet a human to till the earth and the shrubs and the trees had not yet come up from the ground. So both of those in different ways are saying that the earth is in a not yet state, but that's different from saying that it's evil or, or that there's some hostility or latent um, enemy there that needs subduing um, in a, in a, because it's an enemy. So, so this comes out then in, in, in thinking about Genesis one in 26 to 28, where it's, there are discussions about um, is is the command to rule and subdue the earth given because there are hostile enemies or you know there's stuff there that needs um, subduing because it's evil and I would say no that's like in the context of Genesis one it, those commands are more about the kind of cultivation of the earth and unlocking its potential than than subduing an enemy. And so we can't sort of take the the serpent story from Genesis 3 and sort of read it back into Genesis 1 and then kind of try to explain a, a evil lurking. Yeah. Yeah. So. That makes sense. And I think it, I like the way that you're reading the text there. One one other sort of concern that might put pressure on your reading would be, you know, the, the story of the flood where it seems to be an unmaking of creation. And even that unmaking seems to um, have destructive power, right? Um, there, there seems to be... Um, uh, even one could argue a violence uh, in the unmaking that um, that does seem to suggest that a lack of order um, is a threat to humanity and even a violent yeah. threat. And I, uh, how, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I think the flood is a different a different scenario. So by that point, there was the like there had been um, a filling of the earth with violence that necessitated its unmaking, at least according to the logic of the text. And and it's interesting because in, and this gets again at the idea that violence is seen in the biblical text as a threat to creation and something that sort of tears at the fabric holding together humans and the physical world um, in a unity. Um, in, in Genesis 6, 12, it says, and this is deliberately echoing Genesis 1, it says, and God looked at the earth and behold, it was ruined. And it, um, it has the Hebrew verb shachat, which means to ruin. And, and that's, that's an inversion of God looking at the earth and saying, behold, it's very good. And so, earth, the earth is already ruined prior to the flood. And that's like something the text seems to want to say. But then it goes on and it says, so God says, then God says, so I will ruin the earth. So, there's this weird tension there between the fact that the earth is already ruined and then God going ahead and flooding the earth. But in the, in the flood story, I think the, the main thrust of that story is that the, the flood is really the precursor to its renewal. And, and, and it, so, it's, it's not just that the earth is getting pretty bad and God destroys it and the flood is therefore just the agent of, of you know, hostility and violence. It's that the earth is already ruined and so, God turns it back to formlessness, which is a necessary precursor to its remaking. And so, I, I use the analogy sometimes of, of like a potter who's at the wheel. And if you're, have you ever thrown pottery, Matt? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I did that in college for two semesters and I was yeah. good at it. Well, I don't, I don't doubt it's, it. It's the only, yeah, it, it, no, no, you should doubt it because it's the only form of art that I've ever excelled at, ever. I'm still at stick figure stage when I draw things for, you know, on, on the board in, in class for students. They're like, oh, they're like, Dr. Bates, that's bad. <laughs> like, that's a horrible picture. And uh, I'm like, yeah, that's like, that's my sixth grade art skills that were even then never developed. But pottery, that was well, good. I, I mean, I think, so you know then that if you're spinning pottery it, and and you look down at the at the wheel and you see that whatever it is you're spinning, let's say it's a bowl, is full of holes and it's got all these air bubbles, you can't, you can't patch it, you know? And, and that it's a, you have to turn it back to formlessness 
to remake it. And so the damage that violence wreaks in creation is more like the causing those holes and and air bubbles. And that's of a different order than God taking that and then turning it back to formlessness. You know, and so, and I would add to that even further that what God does in turning it back to formlessness is of a different order than what we see in Genesis 1 verse 2. So, kind of have to distinguish those things. Um, that's a long-winded answer. Yeah. I could go on about some Oh, of the, no, that's okay. Things, what you're saying has some interesting implications in terms of the metaphor, too, for thinking about, you know, in Romans 9, you know, where, where uh, you know, Paul says, does not the potter have the right to, to do what he wishes with the lump of clay, right? And, um yeah, um, I've always thought that an interesting Old Testament background text to that is in Jeremiah, where um, Jeremiah visits the potter's house, and the potter doesn't just throw away clay that is um, that is malformed, but but takes it and reshapes it, right? And so I think that that's, that gets into some interesting conversations about soteriology as well. Well, I'm I'm excited about your project on the Old Testament and violence. I think um, I like how you framed it in terms of thinking about continuity with uh, the story of uh, you know of, of uh, uh, what, what we find about Jesus in the New Testament, and especially those sharp antitheses are sometimes I think read in the wrong way, as if Jesus is saying, "Well, you heard what was said in the Old Testament a long time ago." Uh, and now don't pay attention to that anymore. Now I'm telling you something brand new. That's obviously a really problematic and destructive way of reading those texts as Jesus is wanting to say, no, that he's coming to, uh, on the one hand, affirm the Old Testament, but to be the authoritative interpreter. Of yeah. It. And again, getting back to that idea that like Jesus is formed by these scriptures and somehow like th- that, you know, that formation process led to the kinds of teachings he taught. And and that's not to deny his guidance by the Spirit and his his um, unparalleled uh, attentiveness to the Spirit, but I think that attentiveness to the Spirit seems guided by Scripture, and so, or other way around. So, I think I, I tend to highlight the continuity, but I also am trying to look some of those problems of violence squarely in the face, too, because it doesn't help us to just to to highlight the the positive images of God in the Old Testament and just pretend like the other stuff isn't there. So, yeah, all right. I'll, I've got a question for you, Matt. Um, so, so th- this has to do with the state of New Testament studies. And um, so, there seems to be, you could correct me here, like a center and periphery to New Testament scholarship. And you, you've got like Pauline studies squarely in the center, uh, especially in Protestant North American scholarship, I should say, um, and probably British scholarship too. And then you know, maybe out from there, if you had concentric circles, uh, synoptic gospels, and then maybe John and Revelation, and then, um, uh, you know, book of or the Deuteropauline and et cetera, you know, so, so Catholic epistles and Hebrews out there. So, um, what do you think that that's had a sort of distorting effect on our theology, um, having that sort of center and periphery to New Testament studies. And, and what do we, what would happen if we rebalance that somehow? Like what, what doctrines would suddenly become more important and vice versa? Yeah, well, it's certainly interesting um, to to hear how you even frame the question that you do detect the center and periphery. And, you know, it's not really a way that I had thought of my discipline before. Um, Obviously, you're an Old Testament scholar and I'm a New Testament scholar and we we, we both work on both testaments, some. Um, But... But when you did frame the question that way, it rang true to me. I'm like, yeah, that is true, that um, that there is more attention given to Paul's letters than uh, anything else. And I, I think that's probably because a lot of our um, biblical studies work is um, certainly theologically interested, and we're system builders, right? We want to we want to try to make a cohesive um, normative um, system and claims about the New Testament, and so we we want to figure out how to best do that. And so I think we tend to turn to the great system builder, uh, and I think that um, that probably and it's fair to say that in the New is Testament, Jesus? Paul is the most. Sus- uh, he's uh, Paul. I would say is probably our our our, our biggest system builder, right? In terms of uh, a more explicit theology. So uh, obviously, we always want to see Jesus as the fountainhead um, for even Paul's theology. But I think you're right. I do think there is probably in terms of how 
how we try to build um, a system around what the Bible teaches. We we do probably put the focus on Paul more than um, is warranted, maybe. Um, I don't know. So, yeah, so the rest of your question, then, what would happen if we flipped that? Um, yeah, like which doctrines might come more to the fore? What issues might come to the fore a little bit more? Sure. Well, I think we're seeing some of that inversion. You know, I think it's been happening for the last you know, 50 years in New Testament studies. Um, so I do think that there there has been some, especially around the kingdom of God, right? Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, like a recovery of seeing that as center. Uh, we certainly wouldn't want to probably put that at center, at least not in that kind of way, uh, express way in Paul, right? We probably, like he doesn't, it's just not his discourse. He doesn't like to use that language. So, um Moving New Testament studies back around kingdom theology, I think that's agreeable to Paul. A lot of what Paul does, a lot of Paul's gospel, right, um, is centered on a royal gospel that is congenial to a kingdom approach. So I think that um, we're already seeing some of that recovery. Um, I don't know that the that the guild will will move decisively away from having a Pauline center, though, for the reasons that I've discussed. Um, I think we're, we're always hungry for someone to guide us into how to build the best system. And uh, since Paul is systematic himself in some ways, right, um, or at least he, te- he teases us as being systematic uh, enough that we, we want to, to try to make him a system builder. And, and so, so you work in a, a Catholic university. Is it, is it like to what extent – does the the sort of shape of New Testament studies look different in in among Catholic scholars? Would you say? Yeah, I I would tend to see the, that the Catholic scholarly world has tended to follow the Protestant lead in biblical studies. That um, that for particular historical reasons, um, biblical studies as a professional discipline certainly developed. Um, more rapidly in the Protestant-speaking world. I mean, certainly it was the higher criticism and, and such was centered in, in Germany. And particularly, there was there was certainly a stronger emphasis, I think, uh, on Protestant faculty. Not that there wasn't Catholic contributions, but but due to complexities within the Catholic Church, um, there was a, uh, to a certain degree, a lockdown on biblical studies until we have uh, Domino Fuente Spiritu in 1942 or 1943. That's when Catholic Catholic biblical scholarship is allowed to sort of come out from um, uh, a time where it was uh, at least not favored um, by the papacy. When this happens, as as it emerges, Catholicism, I think, is looking for a place at the scholarly table. Uh, they're, they're wanting to say, we're, we're, we're real biblical scholars, too. And we can prove it to you by doing the same kind of things you do. And so I think that there was a lot of imitation and a parasitic sort of dimension of Catholic biblical scholarship as it first emerged. And we saw people who became leading lights within biblical scholars um, primarily by working in conversation with Protestant categories, um, like people like Raymond Brown and um, would, would be uh, people who, you know, or Jerome Murphy O'Connor or uh, folks like that come to mind for me. And so I think we're, we're kind of moving in the Catholic biblical studies world to a, a, a landscape that's beyond that, I would say, where there's maybe an attempt to recover some distinctively Catholic dimensions of, of, of um uh, its heritage with regard to biblical scholarship, I would think of the work of like uh, Brant Petra and um, um, to to a degree Scott Hahn. Obviously, he's a popularizer, but um, he's he's the one who provides a lot of energy behind some of this stuff. That that would give you my my sense. So um, I think that in light of that, I think Catholic biblical scholarship is still trying to find its own distinct voice, and I think it's in a, a phase of doing that right now. That's interesting, like because in. And, and the reason I was asking it is because I felt like that sort of center and periphery is different than what we find in in Hebrew Bible Old Testament studies, where you, you do have the dominance of the Protestant tradition in German higher criticism, which has shaped the field massively. Um, but and but you also have the sort of balancing effect of having a lot of um, Jewish scholars in the field. And so it's not being pulled toward Protestantism. There's this kind of conversation happening between Protestants and, and Jewish scholars and, and Catholic scholars as well. So it doesn't, it, it didn't get pulled quite as decisively toward one body of literature um, like maybe it did in New Testament. So it's just a, a, a curiosity of mine. 
Yeah. Um, all right. So let's let's do um, something that's not quite so businessy. Um, something a little more fun. Um, so, uh, how about this? How do you think being a professional biblical scholar has impacted your parenting? And uh, this is a this is a personal question, you know, because I I have seven kids uh, and I'm trying to parent them well. Um, how do you think that that your you know job right has changed? Changed what you do with regard to parenting. Um, that's a that's a good question. I I think I, I had maybe semi romantic visions of like my kid like teaching my kids Hebrew from an early age and them growing up sort of as familiar with Hebrew as any other second language they might study and and that hasn't really yet panned out. I think my my son Jeremy can he probably if I prompt him get through the first five letters of the Hebrew alphabet, um, but we just haven't I haven't made a priority of that like I expected. So I th- I think to some extent like certain ideals are either out the window or just cal- recalibrated. Um, but I, I think another thing is that having having been a, a Christian biblical scholar for a while now, um, I'm aware of a lot of the sort of faith. And crises that people that I've seen people have along the way because they've maybe been um, given a, a very dogmatic view of of the Bible or had a sort of like a one way of thinking about complex issues or just not been attentive to the complexities of certain issues um, or not been able to handle tension and so I've tried to normalize in my readings of the Bible with my kids. The asking of questions and 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 the unresolved aspects of reading the Bible, um, in a way that I think maybe I wouldn't have otherwise. So when I'm reading the Bible, like so, we're on the topic of Old, of Old Testament violence earlier. Um, when I read through the Bible with Jeremy in the evening, and we come across something that he finds disturbing, and he says it, and I just say, "Yeah, that is kind of." You know, I don't, I don't like how that's put, or, or I find that challenging too. I don't quickly try to resolve it for him, and and I think, and he he goes on. He doesn't stew over it. It's just sort of like, oh yeah, we're as you know, we're allowed to react to the stories we're reading, and and so I think that's something I've been very intentional about. Yeah, but no, I, I hear you. I just last night, um, we're, we're my family and I are reading through Exodus right now. We're just reading one chapter a night, and um, last night, or what well, was the night before last? I guess you know, um, was you know where Moses uh, uh, raises up and kills you know a man as he sees this you know um, Egyptian mistreating his uh, you know fellow Hebrew, and you know the the deed has become known, and Moses flees, and um, you know my my children were troubled like by Moses you know killing this person. Um, and so we kind of talked about, you know, um, on the one hand, is Moses um, trying to do the right thing and trying to administer some kind of justice as he sees this person mistreated? Yeah, yeah, he is. You know, on the other hand, is it right to kill people? No. You know, so we kind of, you know, we, we kind of processed the tension around that and um, allowed Moses to be a, a fallen hero. But um He's trying to do something heroic, I think. Um, I don't know that he. I don't know this is the right action, um, but nevertheless, it is the action he takes. Yeah. yeah, I think that's another one too. Is is sort of um, moving away from a yeah, hero's approach to the biblical characters, and and a life lessons approach to biblical stories. That not not each biblical story is there to just teach us in the end how to be nice to our brother or sister. Like there are certain sort of large picture things that are being um, developed in the biblical story. So, I want them to have that sense of the Bible's kind of large continuity um, that can't be reduced to a lesson each time, you know. So, like, I guess I try to move away from a reductive reading of biblical passages without sort of taking it out of their hands where it doesn't speak to them. So, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I think your, your, your um, overall goal um, maybe could be summarized as you want to help your, your children not to be fundamentalists, but to be faithful, right? That they, you don't want them to, um, to have such a narrow view um, that, they, that they can't deal with 
problems that they're going to encounter later on if they if they're not instructed as to better ways to read these texts. But at the same time, you want to hold on to a solid core and to realize that um, what the fundamentalists are grabbing onto, right, is something beautiful and true yeah. and good. Yeah, and 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 trying to weave biblical categories into reflections on things we encounter in life. And so, so that they see that the Bible not only is relevant, but it's, it's quite exciting what it unleashes. And so, it, it has the ability to help you see the world differently in very kind of technicolor terms. And so, I want, I want them to, to see that. Now, whether they would say that that's the effect of, of like, uh, you know, my, my interjections here and there, I don't know, but, uh, but that's, that's the goal too. Um, all right, Matt, uh, what does the New Testament teach about hell? Oh, did goodness. I give that one to you ahead of time? <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I forget if I did. You yeah. did. Yeah. You did. But when I, when, I, when I saw it, that was my reaction. Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, yeah. good night, yeah. Matt. Are you really going to ask that question? That's such a huge, yeah. huge question. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, surely you have course, students that ask that, right? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. But it, it's, it's a, a difficult question, right? Because there's both descriptive sort of portions to that question, but also normative questions. And it's the normative ones that are most pressing. Right. We can, on the one hand, go through the, the biblical data and say, well, you know, we have, you know, we have different words for hell. We have Hades in some places. It's just the shadowy abode of the dead that seems to correspond more or less to Sheol, right, in the Old Testament. But then we have the Guiana, um, and uh, this is the rubbish heap, you know, that uh, where, where the fire burns and seems to be metaphorically attached to a location near Jerusalem, you know, where uh, rubbish was 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 burned. Um, some scholarly dispute about yeah, that. Yeah, that, that's but, what I um, thought. It I thought it was like, well, so you're saying it didn't, whether or not it actually existed, it's sort of like, it's the thinking around it. That yeah. seems to be the, yeah, there, there's scholarly debate about it, yeah, the legitimacy of whether this place really existed mm-hmm. and whether there was really smoldering stuff going on all the uh-huh. time and, and, and so on and so forth. But yeah, yeah that seems to be the uh, metaphor that's invoked one way oh, or the other. Oh, that just reminded me, Matt, right? I, um, <laughs> when I was in Israel back in nine, 1999, the, the Valley of, of um, uh, the Hinnom Valley, which is right near Jerusalem, which is related to, uh, I think, yeah, Gehenna. Um, it, we we played capture the flag there, and there was I remember like playing there and and seeing like this big pile of trash and being like, oh, there it is. <laughs> seeing the rubbish heap live, yeah. you know. Um, was it smoldering? Uh, no, it wasn't. So I I. I, you know, to throw my sort of two cents into that scholarly debate, it's not always smoldering. Okay. Okay. Um, well, that's solved for us then. Um, uh, it, there's, you know, the obscure reference, I think, to Tartarus, uh, one place in the New Testament in Second Peter, um, which seems to um, involve like a place more of like sort of like Hades, but with the, the torment portion added. Um, so we have, you know, this range of language that's used. And then, you know, as we think about different, you know, kind of descriptions, we have around, um, you know, uh, uh, around hell in the New Testament, of course, we could pull out different things that seem to be emphasized. On the one hand, we have an emphasis on something eternal happening there, um, whether that means we have ongoing conscious eternal torment or not, is obviously a, a, a live scholarly debate, um, that there's clearly an idea of separation of the righteous and the wicked. There's clearly ideas of separation um, from God's presence or exclusion from God's presence as part of this. Um, and so some of the complexities, you know, um, that as we kind of press into the fine comb details, though, were very difficult, right? We have, for instance, in Revelation, uh, is it Revelation 20, I would, I would assume, where it talks about Hades actually um, uh, being thrown th- itself, uh, done away with. I can't think of the exact language. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Into the the Hades is empty to the dead, like so the dead are raised mm-hmm. out of Hades, right? And mm-hmm. they're both the righteous and the wicked, presumably, right? As they have appeared before the great white throne or in the process of appearing there, and then Hades itself is destroyed. So uh, is Hades itself not eternal then, right? As it seems like it, it's it's thrown into the lake of fire, or does the whole thing just kind of get banished down there? And um, yeah, so we have all kinds of complexities there around around hell. Um, I think that the real, um, you know, probably live 
points of debate would be, on the one hand, the possibility of a universalism, you know, the apocatastasis, uh, the idea that uh, even the devil himself might be redeemed in the end, or that even the wicked today, uh, that over the long haul of eternity, that God will somehow or another purify them from their wickedness, and that there will be some level of redemption for them. Um, and uh, that's obviously a, a controversial category that, you know, it would seem that Karl Barth um, at least tacitly affirmed. Uh, Origen is the, obviously the one who's most famously pointed to as an example of this in, in history of believing in the apocatastasis. So we have a kind of a universalism um, on the one hand. We have views of eternal torment, that there's going to be a conscious thing, that your soul uh, is going to be tormented for eternity. Uh, that would seem to be the traditional Catholic view. Uh, and still, I believe, held today by the majority of Catholics and probably the popular Protestant view as well. And then you have like ideas of annihilation or conditional annihilation where some will live forever, but some will not. Uh, and that maybe after God exhausts the penalty, um, that, the, that there is genuinely penalty uh, for wickedness, that the wicked will suffer. But at once that... Once that uh, judgment has been extracted, uh, once the, that penalty has been paid, well, then there won't be an ongoing torture beyond that, but uh, there would be just a, um, an annihilation. So th- that's sort of the lay of the land as best as I can quickly summarize it. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Do you, have, do you have a follow-up question you want to press into? So, so, it's, so is it, I mean, does the New Testament have a coherent picture of... Hell, and is that part of the problem that it that it actually just gives us these little snapshots that you could maybe configure them differently and get different results? But there's, there's no certainly one no way to there's certainly them. no deliberate systematic teaching around hell in the New Testament. I, I would say that that would um, strain the evidence beyond credibility. Or we have occasional places where we'll talk about destruction language, you know, associated with um, eternal judgment that would seem to lend itself to an annihilationist view. Other places uh, where it talks about, you know, uh, the torment going on forever. Uh, Revelation 20.10 is a passage where it talks about at least, um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of the language, but it's, you know, um, uh, it essentially is talking about the, uh, the, the false prophet and the devil being thrown into the lake of fire, right, and that the torment goes on uh, uh, for eternity. So it would seem to suggest an ongoing conscious torment, like the idea of torment. Yeah, so, so, so it says in, in 2010, then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet also were. Their painful suffering will be inflicted upon them day and night, forever and always. So at least the false prophet and the devil have. Yeah, eter- well, that's clever of you to actually have your Bible out and uh, and to get it like that. <laughs> I should have I should have thought of that. Um, but no, thanks for clarifying. But yeah, that's the passage that I had in mind, and um, yeah, it would seem that passage would seem to imply an ongoing conscious torment. Um, but other passages would would seem to suggest not. So I, I think that it it does seem that there's enough that we can systematize around having to do with the idea that. The righteous and the wicked will both be raised from the dead, uh, that there will be a general resurrection of the dead, that all will appear before the great white throne of judgment, uh, that there will be a separation of the righteous and the wicked at that time, uh, and that there will be punishment for the wicked and for the righteous there will be reward. Uh, but the nature of the punishment, I would say, seems to be underdetermined um, in the New Testament. But what isn't underdetermined is the justice of God, right? That God is just. And I think that's sort of part of that sometimes gets lost in this and i and i guess and that that justice is would you say so here's the other part of it i guess is that that justice is intelligible to us as humans so in other words god's ways are indeed above our you know high above our ways but on the other hand there's there's some kind of correspondence between what we recognizes justice yeah. and i think how that's god probably is. the strongest case in favor of a kind of conditional annihilation would be that um, an eternal conscious torment would seem to um, exceed the bounds of God's justice uh, would be the argument, right? That um, that some somebody sinned for a limited time, even in a, a heinous way here on earth, and are uh, then they should be properly punished as a way of counterbalancing 
um, and that God's justice demands punishment uh, for sins, uh, and really the economy of the universe does it. I don't, I don't think that I would want to worship a God, um, even if it were true, that oh, is not able to maintain justice. Um, that is, um, if the world is just run off the handrails and you know wickedness could flourish forever, um, I, I, I don't find that attractive. I, fortunately, God reveals himself to be a God of justice, so I'm not forced to choose. Uh, but a God that's not merciful is very unattractive also, right? Um, God reveals himself to be both. And, um, and um, yeah, but I think, yeah, the conditional annihilation view um, seems to, uh, you know, um, the strongest arguments in its favor that would go beyond biblical data would be philosophical data that suggests that better respects God's justice. Um, all right. Well, that's, that's helpful. Uh, I, yeah, it was it was helpful to map the field and then to think about okay, w- does the New Testament provide us even with a coherent picture? Yeah, okay, all right. All right. I think so it's your I'm turn. Gonna, right? I'm going to ask a question that's pertinent to some of my ongoing theological interests, and um, I'm always tantalized by these Old Testament passages where there is a messenger of God um, that, in some way, seems to be conflated with God's own self in some way. Right? We have the the three uh, visitors of Abraham, um, but um, one is very cl- closely identified with Yahweh, uh, uh, with the L-O-R-D in, in caps, right, in the Old Testament. We have Jacob wrestling with this mysterious being, um, but it seems to be uh, maybe slide into um, this being a, a wrestling with God himself in some way. Moses at the burning bush, right, obviously once he comes over and begins to speak uh, with the, uh, the messenger in the bush, or whatever that messenger might be, um, we find it's God himself who's speaking to Moses. So my question is, um, as as I'm trying to make sense of these theologically and especially um, thinking about larger questions of Christology and Trinitarianism, um, what's what kind of conversations are happening among Old Testament scholars about the Old Testament proper here, um, its own discrete witness, uh, before we sort of rush on to the new? Yeah, um, I, I'm not really up on a lot of the discussions around this topic. So, um, the one book that I read uh, not too many years ago was Benjamin Summers' book, The Bodies of God. And in that book, he he arranges his work in terms of a traditional four-source documentary hypothesis of the Pentateuch. So, according to Summer, um, priestly texts, which is one of the sources, emphasize God's numinous body in the tabernacle located in one place in that kind of glory covode cloud and and of course previous to that his transcendence in genesis 1 and for summer what the priestly texts don't have but other texts seem to other text traditions uh, or sources is an idea that god can have a fragmented body so in other words he's simultaneously present in multiple places so uh, I think he uses the Yahwist or J source um, as an example of that, where God God's body seems to be unba- unbounded or fragmented. So he appears in multiple places simultaneously. So God can be both superintending things in heaven, but also present in the form of a human or a messenger angel. Um, and then he contrasts that yet again with the D source in the Pentateuch, the Deuteronomist, where God's body is solely in heaven, but not on earth. Um, And he points to texts like in Deuteronomy 12, where um, it says that I will choose the place where I'll put my name. So God's name is in the temple, but not his body. Um, And in Kings and elsewhere, it talks about God sort of uh, filling the heavens and not dwelling on earth. So, um, and, and there are some significant critiques of Summer's proposal um, or alternative proposals. For, so, for example, from Mark Smith, who um, there's a previous episode where I talk about Mark, where I talk about the the bodies of God. No, I talk about his book. Um, I can't remember the name of it offhand, um, but he he suggests we should talk about the three bodies of God. So God's he says God's supersized body, and you see that in texts like Exodus 24, where Moses and Aaron and the elders go up on the mountain and and they see God's feet up on the mountain. It seems like a giant body of God, kind of emphasizing his power and might and and how um, how much greater he is than humans, but yet still represented in human terms. 
Um, and he also looks at the the Ark of the Covenant in the temple, which is referred to in some Psalms and elsewhere as a footstool of God. And I think he works it out and God's body would be about 65 feet high. So I have this supersized body that's different from, but analogous to the human body. And then and then there's also those texts in Genesis 18, 19, and 32, where um, you know, God seems to come in human form. So there are, there are also critiques of Summer's idea that, that the D source in the Pentateuch um, only believes that God's body is in heaven and not on earth. Um, so Sandra Richter is probably, she's probably offered the strongest critique of this idea and suggests that name is a way of talking about presence. Um, so it's not emphasizing absence, like my name's here, but I'm not, uh, but is a way of talking about God being present in that place. And um, some other people, Esther Hamori, she wrote a book called When Gods Were Men, and she looks at texts like in Genesis where there seems to be a slippage between div- the divine and human. Um, and it, it, you know, without maintaining strict boundaries that we might want to maintain. Um, and then, and there are some texts that I think kind of defy the categories or just blend them in some way. So Exodus 14 is one where there's this pillar of fire and cloud that's related in some way in that chapter to the angel of the Lord. And then it says in in later on in the chapter that the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud and and throws the Egyptians into a panic. So it seems like God's actually in the pillar of fire and cloud that surrounds him. It, you know, it encases his body and keeps it obscured or hidden from human presence by its brilliance. Um, and in Exodus 34, Moses is at the mountain and it says that the the cloud settled on the mountain, or God came down in the cloud and stood before Moses, which sounds like a human representation. So you have all these anthropomorphic conceptions of God that blend right into those transcendent heavenly conceptions of God um, throughout the Pentateuch and, and on through the Old Testament. But then there do seem to be some traditions that don't really allow for that. So whether you can bring that all together in one system, like a guy um, like Michael Heiser wants to do. So he he wrote The Unseen Realm, and he's got a book on angels. And for Heiser, it all fits together in one system. And I'm not sure it's you can always do that um, as much as I benefited from his work. Well, yeah. that's good. That's a, those are some helpful uh, some helpful tips. As I, I I'd like to figure this out. So I'm Mike Heiser. I want a I want a grand synthesis. Uh, I I don't know if it's convincing, but I I want one. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. And um, yeah. I think he's he's uh he's done. I mean, he knows the ancient literature, and and he's he's well grounded in that sense. And then there, you know, there are interesting questions in terms of proto-Christology. So there's work to be done in terms of figuring out how much these various conceptions of divine fluidity with the human body prepare the way for the incarnation or anticipate that. And and I think there's also a lively debate to be had in terms of the degree to which language about the Spirit of God or the kavod or glory of God relates to language about the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. So it's a big, fascinating area. I'm not sure how to bring it all together, but there's a lot of there are a lot of interesting discussions happening there. Um, so I've got some jokes um, that I thought I'd add in the middle here. Um, okay, what do you call a droid that takes the long way around? Well, it's obviously not an android because it's got to be, you know, um, it's got to be. I don't know. I don't know. R two D R two detour. Ah. Okay. Um, why did the A go to the bathroom and come out as an why E? Why did the A go to the bathroom? Mm, I don't know. It's going to have something to do with P. but Because he had a vowel movement. Oh, gosh. Okay. Um, so this is, this is coming from, I, I picked this up in our, this, I have a sheet here in front of me, and um, my daughter, Lucy, she loves reading jokes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one mm-hmm. of her favorite activities. Mm-hmm. So I picked up her copy, and so these All are right. from her. Yeah. Well, okay, well, you, I, I, I have one, yeah, I have one joke. Um, so, uh, why is 10 
afraid of seven? Oh, because seven, eight, nine. Oh gosh, you've heard it before. Or you're just too clever. <laughs> no, that's well, my no, only joke. That's my my you know my my. You were thinking of like, like jokes my kids like. That was like one that you know. We could we could edit that and all. I'm I could say, I don't know. Yeah, that would be How better. That? that would be better because seven eight nine is that, that, that that's like so profound. Uh, I, I think it's a known it's a known joke. It's a known joke. Um, Darn, my um, one joke is one that everyone's heard. Okay, here's here's one. Um, when I see lovers' names carved in a tree. I don't think it's sweet. I just think it's surprising how many people bring a knife on a date. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. Um, job interviewer. And where would you see yourself in five years' time, Mr. Jeffries? Mr. Jeffries. Personally, I believe my biggest weakness is in listening. <laughs> um, okay. This, this is for our, our, our British listeners. So, okay. so Matt, I'll have to see if you get this one. Um, Two donkeys are standing at the roadside. One asks the other, so shall we cross? The other shakes his head. No way. Look at what happened to the zebra. I don't get okay. it. Okay, so, so in the UK and maybe elsewhere, um, you know crosswalks, how they have those white painted lines? Yeah. Um, in uh, the UK, they're, they're called zebra crossings. Gotcha. gotcha. And so, you know, because you've got the black, white, black, white. Um, all right, I'll stop there. Um, can I, let's see, do we have time? We're probably running short, aren't we? Um, well, we got a little bit of time. Can, uh, l- let, me, let me throw another question at you. And, and this, I, I know you've, um, you've got your new book out, Gospel Allegiance, um, which is very exciting with Brazos, and um, which is the, the kind of follow-on and um, even more accessible version of uh, Saved by Allegiance Alone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so... So I I, I, have, I read your Say by Allegiance Alone. Did I get that title right? You, you're almost at Salvation by Allegiance Alone. Yeah. Well, I you know yeah, I, I read okay. I, I, lots of people. Lots of people miss miss, miss that title. Yeah, you know, I get a lot of Saved by Allegiance Alone. I'm used to it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I'm sorry. That's okay. uh, so so I I wanted to sort of ask a little bit about the concept of faith, which is obviously at the center of what you're doing, and. And and actually, before I do that, could you give like a twenty second soundbite of like how you are conceptualizing faith in the book, just so we set the stage? Yeah, so um, certainly, faith we would want to see as a you know a multivalent word, lots of different meanings in the New Testament. But I'm arguing that in passages that pertain to ultimate salvation, um, that faith. Uh, most often tends in the allegiance direction or the loyalty direction, so that it's um, a word that is a helpful word as we mobilize uh, our thoughts about the gospel and about faith today. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's good. Um, so, I, I could hear some sort of qualifying in that description. So, you said most often, and it's a multivalent word. So, you're 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 not saying every time you see faith, just swap out allegiance. No, um, certainly not. But, yeah, but it's but it's this sort of conceptual framework for a, m- most or a lot of instances of the term faith that we see in the New Testament, right? Yeah, the, the word. The, the problem is our word. You know that we use faith doesn't really capture English faithfulness very well, and that the Greek word really is is sitting on the fence. It's straddling between those two. So that the Greek word pistis really straddles faith or faithfulness or trust or trustworthiness, but we have to have multiple words to do the job. So there are there are numerous passages where uh, Paul commends, let's say, a church for their faith. They're, he's probably commending them more often for their faithfulness, for their loyalty to the Lord Jesus, not for not for trusting in Him as Savior per se. So obviously, those things are 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 categories that can overlap. Like you, part of the reason you are loyal to Jesus is you trust Him as your Savior. It's not that they're mutually exclusive categories. But what I'm arguing in the book is that not enough attention has been paid to the loyalty category or the allegiance category when we talk about final salvation. Okay, so you've got like a Venn diagram and allegiance is is kind of at the center and then you've got sort of trust and belief overlapping with that. Um, yeah, kind of. It? I mean, I would say sort of. It's complicated because I think when an ancient person heard the word pistis, um, they heard something that is our combination of the word faith or faithfulness. They didn't hear allegiance per se. But whenever... 
whenever the context, the overarching context, was something that had to do with a lord or a king or a royal gospel or benefits attending a royal gospel, because that social cue is present, because there is a context that that demands a certain kind of um, leaning toward faithfulness in an, a loyalty or allegiance direction. That's the that's the direction the word leans more often than we we realize. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So the center and, and of the I word just, group is yeah is is still trust or trustworthiness or faith or faithfulness, um, but in certain contexts we would want to say that um, yeah it, it leans more in an allegiance direction. So you're not asking for a sort of uh, a dictionary change or something like that. Um, so uh, I just thought of the title for your next book, though. Oh, okay. Um, all right. Pistis would be the title, mm-hmm. all right? Okay. And then the subtitle is Context That Demands a Verdict. Oh, Context That Demands a, demands a Wow, that's compelling. Yeah. Um, um, <laughs> so so um, you, you mentioned there the royal idea. So this is um, – so one of the questions I've had is – so the kingdom of God is a dominant theme in the in the synoptic gospels um, or kingdom of heaven. And w- it, to what extent is it appropriate to take that language and kind of concept of kingdom, in which you know the the when you put pistis in the context of a kingdom, it makes sense to call it allegiance because it fits with a king and loyalty and subjects and all that. Um, is that an appropriate transfer over to Paul's letters, um, and why? You know, so so that you retain that royal sense. Is it all? Does it all hang on um, Christ, or what? What's the yeah? A lot peg of, that hangs on. Yeah, a lot of it does. Yeah, a lot of the a lot of it is the the Christ and the Lord language. You know, the Christos and the Kurios. Um, yeah, certainly. Um, if we evacuate Jesus Christ, uh, if we evacuate the Christ part of any kind of significance, and that's what's happened, I think, in Protestant uh, circles, Catholic circles, it's really what's happened in Christianity. Um, I think moving from the medieval period into the reform period to today as there was a real tendency to just talk about Christ as if that's um, a singular referent that refers to a specific person and is mainly just a name tag, right? Um, who are we talking about? Well, we're talking about Christ. We're talking about the, the guy, you know, that, that man, Jesus, who's, whose name was Christ in some way or that we can refer to him as such. Um, so it's not that there has, you know, that there's been no awareness that Christ means more than that. It's just been that's not how our theological discourse has tended to move, right? That we haven't tended to um, to use it in a significant way. So um, I think Matthew Novenson's book is very significant here, um, Christ Among the Messiahs, for recovering the idea that um, Christ is an honorific title and uh, that in the New Testament world, this would have had an honorific valence, something like King Jesus, um, but obviously it's a Jewish-style universal king that has all kinds of other associations with it, right, when we use the Messiah title. Um, but nevertheless, we can't empty it. Um, we can't We can't just nix that. Yeah, and so whenever you begin to read Paul's letters with that in view and you begin to think every time you see the word Christ— Right, um, you begin to think like this means something more than just referring to a person. Um, I think it, it does help us to see how how strong the royal theme is throughout Paul's letters. So, what um, what happens when we set faith in relation to other metaphors for Jesus? So, does the same valence come through, or does and and I'm not as I don't know the semantic field enough to know like how many other metaphors for Jesus faith comes into contact with. But does that, you know, I'm thinking like in the, especially in the Gospels, like there are lots of different images, Jesus as shepherd or friend or, you know, other other ways of talking about our relationship as Christians with Jesus that aren't framed in terms of Lord and subject. Um, and then even, this is a separate thing, but even that category Lord is redefined in Christ. So, so what, yeah, let's go to the first one. Yeah, uh, so I do think that the the pistis word group is a lot bigger and more flexible than um, we would tend to think it is, and on the basis of our English language usages, right? The the ways in which we use faith might be, you know, um, to. 
Uh, on the one hand, like it could be maybe believing without any evidence. On the other hand, it could be just like a positive mindset. Um, uh, it, it can sometimes just be equated with believing in general, and it can be associated with um, the opposite of science. Or we have a lot of associations with faith, but if we think faith is a somewhat largish word in English, it's nothing compared to Greek. Uh, Greek used it in a, in a whole bunch of different ways. It's mainly a, a, a term that does speak of relationship or relational ways of living, um, but it, it could have to do with law or with um, with the relationships with the truth itself, or um, it could sometimes be used as a term connected with, with um, uh, like statements of certainty or oaths or business agreements. Um, it, it's, it's really a term that has a, a really large uh, yeah, like in, in good faith. That's yeah. right. And yeah. so when we mm-hmm. think of other metaphors about Jesus, like Jesus is shepherd or Jesus is king or Jesus is savior, or, well, certainly, like, it's not as if the pistis word group has no um, no way of um, fitting into that kind of discourse. Like, pistis was used for friendship language in the ancient world. A pistis was used for military language. You, you know, you swear allegiance to your military leader. Pistis was used even for your relationship to yourself. Like, how trustworthy are you? Um, so it was used, um, you know, in, in courts of law and used in, in terms of witnessing and oath-bringing. And so, you know, as we think about the rich metaphors that attend Jesus, um, it's not as if pistis couldn't go with those. Now, I can't off the top of my head, you know, outline all the different metaphorical ways that pistis connects to um, various New Testament images. But I, I would say that it's not as if the word itself isn't capable of that. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so I'd be kind of curious to know if, like, so if allegiance is the dominant concept that you're kind of working with, does that change when you come into other metaphors? You know what I mean? So, like, would it would it shift a bit so that we need to, like, trust might still sit in a cent- play a central role, if not, maybe not the central, the center. Yeah. Yeah, it, it can. Yeah, you're right. Um, and, and trust can play, um, you know, it, it has a legitimate place still in Christian discourse. You know, I, I do think that it's it's one of those things that I, I think we need to press on, though, and to help change the dominant metaphor that people hear. Oftentimes, whenever Paul talks about faith in, G, in Jesus Christ, it's unqualified other than speaking about him as the Christ. Um, it's not said in, in what capacity. It's not, it doesn't point like, say, trust in the cross, for instance, or trust in Jesus' death for sins. Sometimes we have that language, um, but more often it's it's a little bit underdetermined contextually. Like we're, we're called to, to give pistis toward the Lord Jesus or toward the King Jesus, and um, we're not really given a lot of guidance as to specifically in what capacity other than it would seem that the royal part, you know, is, is there. Well, um, let's let's uh, maybe as we wrap this up. How about an, another question that kind of takes us a little farther afield? Um, have you read anything good lately that's outside theology? Like any book recommendations outside biblical studies or theology? You want to you want to point people to? Um, yes, I. Well, this summer I read three Kaim Potok novels and uh, actually reread them because I had read them before. But I he's one of my favorite authors, so um, I read. Uh, uh, my name is Asher Lev, um, and then I read uh, the the Chosen and the Promise, uh, yeah, which is the follow on to that. Yeah. I've read those uh, in college, I, but it's yeah. been years since I've read them either. And, and you know, and and they're really good books for anyone who uh, I think are in, especially for people in academic contexts that are thinking about their relationship with their own tradition and maybe what they're learning and and the tensions that sometimes creates for people. Um, uh, that must. I, I'm curious of like the extent to which that speaks to Kaim Potok's own experience, because that certainly th- seems to be a theme across those three books. Uh, that you know, like being raised Orthodox or old, um, you know, Hasidic, and then and then have being a learner and coming into contact with new ideas, and then how do you relate to your own tradition? Then, uh, but there, he's got such a unique way of writing. I really enjoy them. How about you, Matt? Oh, goodness. Um, I'm a huge Graham Greene fan. So, uh, he's a British novelist that thrived maybe in the 40s, 50s, 60s. Um, yeah, so uh, I read uh, a Graham Greene novel um, this summer. I'm trying to remember the name of it, though. I've read I've read so many Graham Greens that they all sort of like blend together. But um, I'll make a general shout out for Graham Greene. Um, uh, 
Yeah, um, some of his um, well-known books would be The Heart of the Matter. Um, I read Brighton Rock last summer, not this summer. That one was really interesting. It's about a gangster. Um, so some of them are um, kind of more um, – a lot of them have to do with interior kind of matters of the heart. Um, the Power and the Glory would be another really famous Graham Greene, which I haven't read yet. I'm saving that for last since um, it's okay. his most famous probably. He, okay. he, he deals a lot with religious themes um, as well, but um, but a lot with just human emotions and, you know, complex love affairs and um, violence and uh, all, all those kinds of themes circle around in his books. But I think he's just a great writer. I enjoy Graham Greene. I'm reading right now um, – uh, a um, Ursula Le Guin um, uh, sci-fi, and um, it's called The Left Hand of Darkness. And if you think that current discussions of gender and transgenderism and all of that are complex, uh, try The Left Hand of Darkness, as uh, it's a very uh, interesting and bizarre world that she's created that involves these androgynous beings who um, become male or female uh, based on um, certain erotic arousals, but otherwise are in a neuter state. Huh. Uh, it's weird. Um, I'm, I'm only I'm only about fifty pages into it, or maybe a little farther. But um, yeah, I've read a number of other Ursula Le Guin, and I, I usually enjoy her. So yeah, excellent. Well, um, I think that's uh, I, you know that's one place to leave this episode. Yeah. Uh, I, we usually say like that's a good place to, to close out, but I, I'm not. You know, I don't know what to make of that, but uh, yeah, you know, I don't know what to make of it either. I think either. it's, it's, it's a, a place to to close out our episode. Yeah, uh, but but Matt, it's been fun reconnecting because we haven't done an episode. We haven't even co-hosted together in ages. So that's true. Um, I, I hope uh, hope we get to do that again. But it's been nice to to do this. So thanks. Uh, absolutely. Yep. This has been Matthew Bates and Matt Lynch for On Script. It's been a delight. Uh, we hope to have you back with us soon. You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.